but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, as we've heard your word read, we pray that you would give us clarity of understanding and openness of heart to receive your word and its implications for our motivations, the way we think, the way we see life. And we pray that you would help each of us take steps forward in being transformed to live in light of your grace in our workplaces and in the tasks that we have in any given day throughout the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a couple prominent views of work. Some think of work as nothing, and some think of work as everything. Those who view work as nothing view it basically as a curse, right? They don't think it's very important. They just look forward to the paycheck or the weekends. It's not the work that it's important to this view that, I mean, many of us in this room can default to. Uh, many of us in America default to. It's not the work itself that we view as important, but really just the finances that it produces, um, or really it's just getting through the work to the weekend to get time away from work. And so Christians embrace this view as they view work, and they view work as a place where they can be a disciple, but only really in this sense. It's the place to talk about Jesus and to seek to make disciples of Jesus in an explicit way, or to get money to support Christian ministries. Both of those are really important. But to view that as the exclusive way we think about the importance of work in light of Christ um, is a shortcoming. The work itself doesn't matter to them. You know, this is in praise of early retirement, right? Let's just get done with work. Other people view work as everything. And this is prominent in our culture as well. They view work as their identity. It's what gives them ultimate meaning in life. Their worth is found in what they do. It's found in their achievement or success. Now, we should say, even at this point, that as we step back and just look at the way work is presented in the Bible, work is a gift of creation before sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, work became hard. So, work is not a curse. Uh, work has become hard because of sin in the world. Um, but work is a gift for us. And so the gospel really gives us a new way to view work. It transforms everything about it, really. It changes why we work. It changes how we work. It shows us that work is significant. So it's not nothing, um, but it also shows its significance without making it everything. So the first thing we need to do here, though, as we look at this text, is ask a bigger question. How does this particular text that we just read apply to us today. Because Paul, who wrote this, is not explicitly addressing employees and employers as we would typically think of them. He's addressing bondservants and masters, or maybe your translation says slaves. They're similar words. So let's first think through how a text like this can apply to us today, and then we'll walk through it together. So how does this apply to us today? The very first word in the text makes us pause, right? Bondservants. And the command here is for bondservants or slaves to obey their masters. So, 
you know, one of the biggest questions that comes to anyone's mind when we approach this text is, why does Paul not just say slavery is wrong? I mean, if he's going to bring it up, why doesn't he just say it's wrong, right? I mean, isn't that the question on our minds? Or at least now that I've asked it? We know that slavery is wrong in any form, so why does he not address that directly here? Well, here are three observations to help us think this through. First, the slavery in the first century in the ancient world here was different than the slavery that we're most familiar with and what comes to our minds first. So it was different than the slavery in our nation's history. It was different than the slavery that's still present around the globe and even in America today thinking of the sex trafficking as well. Um, But we need to make sure that we don't read our, our ideas of what we're familiar with into Paul's context here when he refers to bondservants and masters. So historians estimate that maybe a third of the population in cities like Ephesus, where this letter was written to, or cities like Rome, were slaves. Roman slavery, though, was not ethnically based. Slaves could be brought from any country or even their own, Some people sold themselves into slavery as a way of getting out of debt. Others were prisoners of war, and they were put into slavery, uh, at least for a time. It also wasn't typically permanent. Many slaves, I think most slaves, were released by the time they were 30 or so years old. Some people chose to be bondservants in order to get out of debt. And when they did get free, they would go into business with their former masters Slaves were also often paid for their work and received rewards for their work. They didn't just do hard labor and domestic duties. Some of them were doctors. Some of them were writers. Some of them were accountants. Um, Some of them were teachers. Some of them were sea captains. Some people entered into service like this as a stepping stone in order to not only get out of debt, but really to learn skills, to be educated. So slavery in the ancient world was very different in many ways than modern slavery, but even so, it's still wrong, and many slaves were treated very harshly. So second, second observation, when Paul addresses slavery, he actually does undermine it. In his first letter to Timothy, he explicitly condemned slave trading In 1 Corinthians 7, he encourages slaves to obtain freedom if they have the opportunity. He wrote a letter to a Christian slave owner named Philemon, and Philemon's slave Onesimus needed to return to him. And so Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And right here in this text that we just read, Paul gives the very principles that are the undoing of slavery, right? He affirms the human dignity and the full humanity of these servants. He urges masters to no longer use fear at all as intimidation or threatening. He says that the servant and master both have a greater master in Jesus And so over time, principles like these and the other texts I referred to, they led to the undoing and ending of slavery. Slavery has been incredibly common throughout world history. I mean, just throughout the ages and across the globe, culture to culture to culture to culture, it's been all over. But in Britain, a Christian named William Wilberforce gave his life 
um, to the ending of it. So if you don't know the story of William Wilberforce and the others that were involved in getting rid of the slave trade in Britain in the 1800s, I encourage you to um, look that up and um, learn his story. You know, when professing Christians in America tried to use the Bible to reinforce and uphold slavery, there were a number of other Christians that helped them realize that that was an abuse of the Bible, it was evil, that the Bible does not um, affirm and uphold slavery, and that they were simply wrong, right, from the very beginning. Every single person, man, woman, child, is made in God's image and has worth and dignity. Everyone is our neighbor to whom we owe love and respect. So, we still ask the question, though. So, Paul gives the principles that eventually end slavery in places. Why didn't he just tell these Christians to do it? So, that leads to the third observation. Uh, Christians at this time were an incredibly small minority, incredibly small. I mean, to be a Christian in the city of Ephesus was nothing like what we think it looks like to be a Christian in cities in America. They, they found themselves in a culture that was built on slavery. And he, he focused on helping this little tiny minority live in the midst of their broken structures. So he's being very practical throughout this letter. His focus wasn't on reshaping economic or political structures. He's speaking to the immediate situations of these Christians as they find themselves in those situations. So, in light of this, how does this text apply to us today? Well, a couple ways. First of all, slavery is still around in various forms and must be fought. The work that people are doing to end slavery and sex trafficking is critical, and there's a shocking amount that still happens even in our own nation, even in our own state. And so, I want to encourage you as Christians, we believe that everyone is made in God's image. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to treat others as the Lord has treated us. And so this puts a burden on us to care um, about what's going on and to seek to use our gifts to consider how we might contribute um, to helping and acting. So I encourage you to do that. And second, a second way this applies to us today, uh, what Paul says to servants and masters in that setting applies to all sorts of situations. It applies to any situation where someone is in authority and another is subject to that authority. So it applies to prisoners and their guards, right? Prisoners are not entirely free for a time. They're under authority. It applies to the military. Those in the military are under commands. They've voluntarily restricted their freedom for a time. It applies to workplace relationships. And so, it, employs to, it applies to employees and to bosses. And that's what we're going to focus on mainly for the rest of our time then. We'll just follow this in two parts, the two parts of the text. First, we're going to consider those who are serving under authority And then second, those who are leading with authority. So first, those who are serving under authority, employees. And when I say employees, this also refers to most bosses because most bosses still have a boss above them, right? If you're a department supervisor, you may still have a store manager who is in authority over you. If you're a store manager, you may have a general manager or regional manager and so forth. So this applies to everyone in a work setting who is under authority. 
The main command is in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. In other words, workers, follow your leaders. If you have a boss, part of your job is to do what your boss says. Of course, Paul relativizes the authority of any boss here because he calls the master just an earthly master, right? Implying that Jesus is the truest master. But if you're an employee, your job is to follow the lead of someone else so long as they're not asking you to sin. And this applies to those who might volunteer for an organization for a time as well or serving in the local church. If there's someone in authority over you, then you're called to follow their lead. Now, we recoil at this in our culture. Um, Our culture is very resistant to authority. It's no surprise to us. Um, We want those in power mainly to redistribute that power, to share that power with others. We want the power passed around. But in the Bible, the, the vision isn't necessarily to give power away, but it's to steward it faithfully. You know, authority and power are not negative in themselves. They're gifts, and they're to be used for the benefit of others. They're to be used to, for the flourishing of others. So how are we supposed to serve then in this role? Well, verse 5 says, you can read it with me, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. When he says with fear and trembling, he doesn't mean being scared and cowering. Uh, this is a common phrase in the Bible, and when we look at how it's used, we see that it refers to something like having deep respect. So this is about fulfilling our role, uh, following the lead of those who are in authority over us with deep respect. And it's not to be just done externally. It's not to be just a show of respect, uh, because the next thing he says is with a sincere heart. So there's integrity here, integrity between, with the way that we express ourselves in respecting authority and the way we actually feel toward that authority. We're to, we're to have a heart posture that is uh, reverent and respectful. So it's not just I smile when I see my boss coming around the corner, but then I'll badmouth him, badmouth him to my coworker when he leaves or she leaves. This is about smiling because we've learned to serve with a sincere heart. So how do we do this? this is really hard, isn't it? I mean, let's not pretend that we've just heard a command that's like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm already doing that, or oh, I didn't know that, I'll just kind of put it into, into practice tomorrow. I mean, this is hard, right? This goes deep. Um, so how do we do it? I mean, how often have you complained about a boss? In your heart, to your boss, to other people, or a manager, or a church leader? How often have you just faked the level of respect? So how do we fulfill this? And I think it's at this point that Paul's teaching here gets incredibly profound and helpful because Paul presses into the deepest motivations that we have at our work. He transforms the way that we think about work and service. He gives us a whole new lens um, through which to see our work. And he's leading us then to change not just how we work, but why we work. And the result here, if, if this can enter into our hearts by the Spirit's power, This is radical. So Paul addresses the deep questions that everybody asks in life. Every worldview, every culture, every religion is asking and answering a few core questions. Three of them are here addressed and they're related to work. So whether we think about it or not, 
We are all working in a certain way based upon how we answer at least three questions. These questions are, who am I? Do I matter? And why do I work? Everybody's answering those questions, whether you've thought about it consciously or not. And those are questions of identity, significance, and purpose. Who am I? What is my identity? How we answer that question has incredible implications to how we work. And we can tell based upon how we work how we're answering that question perhaps as well. Who am I? What's my identity? Second, do I matter? Is my work significant? And third, why do I work? What is driving me? What's my purpose in my work? Paul's really addressing each of these key issues with what he says here. And he's doing what he does all through this letter. He's showing how this historic reality of Jesus Christ entering human history, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised again, and then now enthroned as the king. This real historic event has massive implications for how you and I think about life and feel about our work at three in the afternoon on any given Thursday 2,000 years later. Paul's making these implications clear here. The good news of Jesus' gracious rule changes how we work. So let's just walk through these. First, identity. Who am I? In verse 6, Paul says one of the most profound things that he could say to servants in that culture. He calls servants to work as servants of Christ. In verse 9, he says that masters also have the same master above them, namely Jesus. So Paul is honoring bondservants in that culture, and he's honoring servants and masters equally. This was unprecedented in the ancient world. Paul's treating them as equal members also of a local church here. So their society may have viewed bondservants as nothing more than servants, or even those who weren't servants but were just employed in some other way. They would have viewed kind of hierarchies of employment and different activities, and your worth might have been based upon that. And Paul says they're all servants of Christ. He uses the same phrase to refer to all Christians. He calls himself repeatedly a servant of Christ, even though he was an apostle. So in our culture, work is often linked to our identity, right? I mean, we meet people and immediately hear the question, what do you do, right? Because that's how we find out who people are in some ways. We're trying to find out identity. And so this is, we've, we've tied this to our sense of identity, um, you know, the position that we hold or the tasks that we do, we feel a sense of importance or not in our role. But this can be incredibly wearying, can't it, if we do that? Because it leads so many people to either overwork or feel this burden of anxiety about their work. I mean, we often overwork because we're getting our sense of identity from our position. And Paul is saying, you don't work for your identity. You work from it. You already have your identity in Christ. You are a servant of Christ. He is your Savior. He's your master. He's your friend. That's who you are. And now you, you bring who you are as a servant of Jesus Christ into whatever situation you find yourself in. 
Second, Paul addresses our significance. So we're all asking the question at some point, does my work matter? Does it have dignity? And Paul's speaking to servants who, some of whom had very menial jobs. They wouldn't have chosen their jobs. They're looking forward to the day when they can get out of their servitude. Their service to their master may may seem incredibly unimportant. And here's what Paul says next in verse 6. You can read it with me. You work as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So Paul is saying that the kinds of tasks that you get handed to do that, that you don't think are very important, he's saying that you can do those things as the will of God, as God's own desire. All good work well done can glorify God. So this challenges the viewpoint that says that work is not significant. Some Christians have viewed work, as I mentioned, as just a place to share about Jesus or make money to support ministry. But Paul doesn't say that here at all. He says that the work that a servant does can be viewed as doing God's will. And it's called service because it's benefiting other people. It's an act of doing good to a neighbor. So, an Irish poet named Evangeline Patterson put it this way, I was brought up in a Christian environment where because God had to be given preeminence, nothing else was allowed to be important. I have broken through to the position that because God exists, everything has significance. Isn't that great? I mean, in other words, and this is such good news, work itself is a primary way that we fulfill the two great commandments, to love God and love our neighbor, right? It's it's a primary context where we can glorify God by loving Him with all our heart, doing His will, and in our acts of service, however small they may seem to other people, it's doing good to people. It's doing good. And it takes effort to think this through, I think. I mean, sometimes we can think of our job and get so short-sighted, right? We just look at the task in front of us in the immediate boss above us, rather than what Paul's doing. He's saying, step back. Look at who's your ultimate boss. It's Jesus. You're serving Him. And think about your task, not just as kind of uh, doing a menial thing, sorting papers, making a sale. Think about how this is loving people. How is what you're doing serving people? Now, if you think that through and you realize you're harming people, you need to get out of that job, of course, right? Good work, well done, glorifies God. But your work can be bringing flourishing to people. It can be benefiting people. I mean, I was in landscaping for a while, and so I needed to think that through. How, how is pulling weeds is significant at all? And I realized, you know, part of this is I'm creating uh, in service to this family who hired this house that I'm doing the lawn of right now. I'm, I'm helping them create a hospitable home to bring order out of chaos, pushing down the curse of weeds that keep popping up here to beautify this place, part of beautifying a neighborhood. So in every, every job you're doing, you're not just getting a sale, you're benefiting someone's life. You're not just kind of putting concrete across a bridge, you're keeping a bridge up so that people don't die when they go across the river, right? Um, so just thinking through, how is what I do actually an act of service and love? So I encourage you just to sit down if you've never done it and just think it through. Think it through with someone else. Sometimes we need someone else to help us even see the good work that we're doing. I think one of the roles that we have as Christians is to honor and affirm the good work others do. Um, in our culture, it seems like we're starving for this kind of affirmation. Just a few weeks ago, I was scheduling an appointment for plumbing, 
And the woman on the phone took my call, and she was incredibly kind. And she was actually empathetic. I mean, she's asking me what I needed, and I said, well, I had this valve that's leaking. And she, with sincere empathy, not mocking, said, oh, no. You know, she was concerned about it. It was just a little, a little leak, but she, was, she knew that that could be a problem. And so she was just super kind, the whole phone call. So I just kind of said at the end, you know, of all the people I've talked to in my life to schedule an appointment with, you are, you are the kindest. And she choked up and said, thank you, and said it meant so much to her. Did that with another guy who worked for a government agency. I was trying to get a passport done, and he was super kind. And so just at the end, I gave that kind of affirmation too, and I could just feel this incredible joy surging through the other line where he just said, this is what makes me get up every day, comments like this. You know, um, I'm not saying those things to draw attention to myself, but to draw attention to them. I mean, what good work people are doing that we overlook, and we can just fill them with encouragement. Remember Christina did that talking to a doctor, said that she had such a great bedside manner and and that all her friends loved her as as a doctor, and she said the doctor was in tears. I think she hugged you, right? Yeah, And, and that's because this is so rare. And so we have the opportunity to recognize reality and affirm people in it. Third, Paul addresses our purpose. He transforms our motivations. We are often not very self-aware of our motivations for working. I think part of growing as a Christian is growing in self-awareness, right, of how we come across to people, of why we think the way we do, why we feel the way we do, why we respond to situations the way we do, and why we work, why we work hard in our particular jobs or not. And Paul kind of drills down into the deepest motivations we have here. He identifies a primary motivation that we often have, and then he gives the gospel alternative. So what's the primary motive? Verse 6, he says that we're to serve, verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Um, Some think that Paul coined the word eye service because it doesn't show up in any uh, Greek literature before this point. Which makes me actually wonder, you know, it makes sense because as someone like Paul, as a Christian growing in self-awareness of motives, as we we learn to understand ourselves better, we need to create new words that aren't available. So Paul does this. He's like, here's a motivation for why people work. There's not a word for it yet. I service and people pleasers here. And what's this about? This is about working primarily just to make an impression make an impression on our bosses, make an impression on our coworkers. It's working so that people will see what we've done and say, that was awesome, you're awesome, right? It's working so that coworkers approve of us. It's working so that our family and friends esteem us for our success. So Paul's putting his finger on this motivation and he's saying, if that is what's driving you, you need to repent. Here's the alternative then. You know, and before we get alternative, a friend of mine just shared with me recently that he's been overworking, taking too much responsibility upon himself, and he realized that a main reason why he was doing this was that he wanted to be esteemed by his bosses. He wanted to be seen as successful. I mean, that's in me. I'm sure that's in many of us. It's, a con- it's common in any line of work because this is an issue of the human heart, and Paul's addressing it 2,000 years ago. Now, we can miss how dominant this motive is, 
especially if what we're doing is actually good, right? You can be an, an, a ministry leader, and this can be driving you, right? You can be doing great things that look like they're pleasing Christ, and Jesus looks right through what you're doing and sees that the motive is corrupt, right? That you're just doing it. You're, you're making much of Christ, so people would make much of you. You can do that as a Bible study or small group leader, right? You can do that as a ministry leader, and if you haven't yet considered that this might be a primary motivation in your life, um, I, I'm encouraged for you. I encourage you to look into that because this could be the beginning. You could be on the edge of a revolution in your life that will lead you to new freedom because that motive is enslaving, right? On the other hand, it's also dangerous because it can lead us to do some pretty dark things. I remember reading about how Hitler said that he could get people to do anything by just making up new positions and titles and giving it to them, right? You want someone to do something? Here, I'll promote you. We'll create this title, give you this name, give you this pin, get him to do anything. And, and he would even mock privately the people that were serving him in the military because of how fickle they were, because he was tapping into this motive in the human heart. Give him honor, give him esteem, get him to do anything. Now, in contrast to this motivation, Paul gives the new one, and he shows how Jesus can set us free from being enslaved to the approval of people. He says that rather than serving people primarily or the approval of them, we serve Christ. Look at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So we can be set free from this desire to please everyone. We can walk into our workplace knowing that we're serving Jesus and that we don't need the esteem of other people because we already have Christ's approval. We don't need the rewards of a boss because we already have the reward of Christ's coming. And this is good news because, you know, Jesus is the only master who approves us when we succeed and still loves us when we fail. The idol of approval leaves us unsatisfied when we get it, and it beats us up when we're down, right? Just makes us feel even more ashamed when we don't get it. So this brings us back to where we started here. Paul's calling us to work with respect and sincerity from the heart. How do we do that? How do we do that without complaining about our leaders? How do we do this with deep sincerity? And we can do so when we realize that Jesus is our true master, when, when we learn to live like this in a moment-by-moment -moment reality. You don't have to work for your identity. You already have Christ as your Lord. You don't have to feel like your work is meaningless because you can be doing the will of God. You don't have to work for the approval of others because you have Jesus' approval that you're working for. So this is the kind of motivation that leads companies to have a value like this one, which I've heard and love. It's something like do the right thing and risk the consequences, right? Do what's right and risk the consequences. Because if you do what's right, you're doing God's will sincerely from the heart, approved by the Lord, and you can risk whatever consequences come. That's freedom. All right, now let's move from those serving under authority to those leading with authority. We'll be briefer here. Verse 9, let's read it again together. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. 
So he starts by saying, do the same thing. That means that what he just said to servants applies also to masters. In other words, if you are a boss or a manager or a supervisor, verse 5 applies to you as well. You are to lead with fear and trembling, right? With deep respect for those whom you lead from the heart. You're called to lead with sincerity and integrity. This also means that you get to lead out of a new sense of identity and significance and with new motives as well. So think about your identity. It is not, it does not have to be in how powerful you are. Your identity isn't your company or in how many people are under your oversight. Your identity is in Jesus. And in light of Ephesians, you are a sinner who doesn't even deserve to be here anymore. Right? We have forfeit our right to life, and yet God is so gracious to us. He not only gives us life and the blessing of work, but He gives us eternal life, and He gives us this new church family, and He gives us new hearts and these new motives. I mean, what a privilege to be alive and to be in Christ and to be forgiven in Him and walking with Him as our King. That's both incredibly humbling and liberating. Right? It's humbling because we recognize we don't deserve the position we have. And, I mean, not a bit of it. Everything's by grace, but it's also freeing because we don't have to worry to try to maintain that position to maintain our sense of identity and significance. If we lose our position of authority, it doesn't touch our deepest identity. We're still servants of Christ, and He loves us. Think about what this means for our significance, uh, the significance of our work. We may look at our work and think, is this really meaningful? Does what I'm doing matter? And Paul says that leading is a way of doing God's will and loving your neighbor. It's a way of loving God and others. It's a way of glorifying God. And think about your purpose. You can be motivated not by having people respect you and esteem you and praise you, but by the approval of Jesus. And now he says something specific for leaders. So all of that's in common with every kind of worker. But here's something specific for leaders, and I think this is incredibly important for us to hear today. So those three words, stop your threatening. What's Paul addressing there? All right, what's the language that we would use today? It's the abuse of power, right? To threaten is to motivate with fear. It's to control someone's behavior by using fear. And this is a huge issue in every culture. Um, it's being addressed more publicly in ours, thank goodness. Uh, many people get into positions of power and abuse that power. This happens in every kind of institution. It happens in many churches and ministries. It happens in marriages. It happens par from parents to children. The abuse of power happens when a boss, for instance, holds a promotion over someone unless they do something personal for them. Right? He won't give that promotion unless something personal is done for him. It happens when a leader uses bully tactics to get his or her way. It happens often when a leader lacks humility. A leader may be arrogant, arrogantly confident and doesn't honor others. There's often narcissistic tendencies in people that abuse power. Abusive leaders often hide or cleverly distort the truth. A leader may make statements that kind of manipulate the facts manipulate information in a certain way to get the result or the buy-in that they want. They aren't transparent. A leader may develop a culture of fear around him or her. People are afraid to speak their minds. People don't feel safe to express their ideas. 
It happens when a leader is overly controlling or micromanaging. They don't give freedom to others. They demand that everything is done their way. So, I mean, those are just some ways, and there's many others, that leaders abuse their power. And Paul is speaking directly to that here. He's saying if you are in a leadership position, you have power entrusted to you. And power is a good thing in and of itself, but it's to be stewarded for the flourishing of others. And so there is to be no motivation from threats and fear in that sense. So as we step into our workplaces, in all of us, let's step into tomorrow morning or this afternoon or into your uh, whatever kind of work you have, you may work from home, you may have a side business, you may be out of a season of work, but you still have tasks in front of you. Let's step into the work that we do with this new identity, new significance, and new purpose. And if you've not yet trusted Christ, you are invited to and welcome to even right now. If you've been living outside of this way of living, and this sounds like, like the way it, it should be because this is reality, The Lord Jesus invites you today to turn from your sins, to turn from those self-centered motives, to repent of that and trust Him. Receive forgiveness, receive a new heart, receive the Spirit's power to give you this whole new way of living. And you can do that even today. And so let's look at our motives this week. Let's just be more aware this week, kind of as a trial week of your motivations. Um, Just analyze them. Why do you feel the way you do? Why do you work? And the point here isn't to be discouraged, right? It's ultimately to repent and experience the joy on living on the other side of repentance, right? Um, The path of joy is often through repentance. So we confess our sins to him. We ask him to forgive us, knowing that he is happy to. And then we ask him to empower us with new motives. And uh, as we wrap up here, let me just share something that Jesus shared with his disciples. You know, Paul calls himself and us servants of Christ here, and that's a privilege, right? What an honor to be called a servant of Jesus, right? But do you know what Jesus said about that? The night before he died, he gathered his disciples together for a final meal before he was going to be crucified, and on that evening, he said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Apparently for Jesus, being called a servant of Jesus is not honor enough. He calls us his friends. So we're both. We are his servants. But Jesus gives us even this greater honor of calling us his friends. And he proved it. Because right before he said this, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And that's what he was going to do within hours, to lay down his life for us, for you, his friends, and his servants. So that's who we are if we're in Christ. We are servants of Jesus and friends of Jesus. We have this new identity in him, and we can walk into the world loving God, serving other people's people with great joy. Um, And none of that, nothing can happen in our day that can touch this identity and this great joy. So I'll invite the musicians up, we'll sing together, and let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for the great privilege of being made in your image and then being rescued by your grace. 
we confess to you that our motivations have often had us at the center and that we have been enslaved and we are addicted so often to the approval of people that we work for to please other people for eye service and we pray that you would forgive us and renew us and give us these new freeing liberating motives to rest in your kindness and your favor pray this in the name of jesus amen